good evening to you all. This morning when uh, Joseph was taking questions and he closed out his answers with a description of equanimity and what it was and really great compressed description of it. I had a really good opportunity to watch my mind because my talk tonight is on equanimity. So I watched this little blip of irritation arise in the mind. He's talking about my topic. He's taking my talk. And we went back into the, the teacher room afterwards and Pascal says, Joseph, you took Winnie's topic. <laughs> which he's always sensitive. (laughs) Either that he's trying to stir something up. (laughs) So, you know, after thinking about it for a while, I realized, well, there's plenty to be said on this topic. (laughs) Plenty to be said. So let me just start with this image of someone who's a master surfer. So this being is in constant, balanced connection to the continually changing movement of waves and water. They're not rigid. They're very fluid in how they move. Completely responsive to the wave on which they ride. Sometimes when this is really working, it's There's just a oneness to the whole experience. And this to me is a good image for equanimity. It gives a bit of an understanding on a kinesthetic level of what's being talked about here. And this word equanimity in English refers to a state of Connected, accepting, balanced openness. Relaxed, centered presence. Clear, non-resistant allowing. Spacious stability. So if we're going to take this word equanimity and look for it, in the Buddha Dharma, it basically comes up as two different words, which are closely related to each other. And the first one, which you may be familiar with, is upekka, meaning balance of mind, non-reactivity, equipoise, evenness, Equipoise is one of my favorite words for this aspect of mind. Equipoise. Equa, equal, poise, implies a certain kind of uh, uprightness, a certain kind of centeredness. And the other poly term used to describe this state is a long word. (laughs) Tatra majat tata meaning to stand in the middle, a kind of inner stability which is not thrown out of balance. And again, it said centeredness. So this equanimity hmm, has a lot of associations with it. And when I define something, I always like to say what it isn't. Something you might think it is because it seemingly is similar or is kind of close to the meaning of the word, but really is not within the boundaries of what's meant by uh, upeka. So equanimity is not suppression. Suppression is when 
there's an attempt to deal with an arising state or experience by stuffing it down, denying it, tightening around it. It's a form of fear or aversion and not wanting to let something in. So one version of this that that you might think is sort of like equanimity but really isn't is uh, when the mind experiences something and it doesn't like it or it's feeling overpowered by it and the mind the mind goes, this is often the thought too, I'm not going to react, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react. So another thing that could get misunderstood or confused with equanimity is apathy or indifference. And this is where we really don't connect with the experience, but we kind of withdraw from reality in a defeated or deluded manner. So the kind of thought that often goes with this is, I don't care, doesn't matter, it's all right, it's all rising and passing away, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, oh, I don't mind, I see it's impermanence of all things. You see, there's a tone. Or sometimes it's more like the hell with it tone, yeah. Well, it's all Duke anyway, (laughs) right? So Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a well-known Theravadan monk, he's a wonderful scholar and translator, offered some comments on this this topic of the confusion of upekka or equanimity with indifference. And he said, there's often a mistaken inference from people who are not well-schooled in Buddhism, and particularly some of the early uh, Western translators, uh, the early connectors with Buddhist texts, where they translated upekka as indifference. Indifference. Which would mean that when you're practicing upekka, you're practicing it to be detached and unconcerned with other beings. And he says this is really an incorrect understanding and that instead upekka is an evenness of mind, unshakable freedom of mind, a state of inner equipoise that cannot be upset by gain and loss, honor and dishonor, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. Upekka is freedom from all points of self-reference. It's indifferent only to the demands of the ego self and its craving for pleasure and position, not to the well-being of one's fellow human beings. And when you think about it, his interpretation makes perfect sense. He's saying, no, we're not indifferent to others or to ourselves either. We're not indifferent to our own deep well-being. We just don't indulge certain habits of mind (laughs) that are deluded. But it's understandable that Upeka does not in any way wipe out or blot out or eliminate care and concern. Because when you think about the Eightfold Path, you think of the second step of the Eightfold Path is wise intention. Wise intention, which includes renunciation, but it also includes the commitment to developing a mind of non-harming, meaning a mind that is filled with metta or loving friendliness and compassion, karuna. And the Eightfold Path is like a hologram. You have to read any part of it in light of the totality of it. Another uh, point that supports Bhikkhu Bodhis saying Upeka is not indifference to others is the position of equanimity or Upeka in the development of the Brahma Viharas. If you think of how you learn them, metta or loving friendliness is first, then compassion, 
than empathetic joy. And the last thing that's learned is equanimity. So the mind is oriented towards the first in particular. Other aspects of that mind of goodwill are developed and and primed through the practice of compassion and the practice of empathetic joy. And then equanimity is added. Adding a kind of balance, a kind of stability, so that the mind does not get carried away with the desire to control things that can't be controlled given the nature of how things are. In other words, it helps keep those practices from turning in the direction of codependency. On this topic, too, of what equanimity means, there's another thing that sometimes comes up for people around this topic, which is, well, if you get all equanimous and you don't have any preferences anymore, does that mean you just get kind of indifferent and passive? The mind of, oh, whatever happens, just let it happen. I'll just, you know, lose any motivation to make a choice, take a stand, exert initiative, make something happen set a limit. And the answer to that is that, no, that's not what it means. And and Shinzen Young actually uh, has a brilliant way of discussing this point and making this clarification. He says, equanimity involves non-interference with the flow of subjective sensation." flow of subjective sensation. Apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. Thus, although seemingly similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel, experience things as they are, and as such is the opposite of suppression. As far as external expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what is appropriate to the situation. So what you lose is reactivity, not wisdom. So that's the clarification piece of the talk. So then we get the question, equanimity. Equanimity in relationship to what? The short answer is everything. Everything that arises and passes away, meaning all conditioned things. And let's talk for a little bit about why this is of value. Trying to ground this into something practical and graspable by the mind. Why is equanimity of value? We live in a world where we have limited ability to choose what we experience. Is this not true? Have you noticed this? One way to look at it is to say that the eight worldly winds are always blowing. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and ill repute, move move through our lives again and again. We can't select out the parts of these dualities that we prefer and have only that. 
things are always changing. All experiences have the characteristic of anicca or impermanence. Thus we're always being presented with loss and with new experience. These are all the result of causes and conditions over which we have limited control. If we're going to go back to our surfer image, we would have to say, the waves of experience come as they will. And that our happiness and well-being is aligned with learning how to surf these, not in trying to hold on to them or push them away in any way. Can you fight the ocean? Can you fight the ocean of samsara? Consider. If we struggle against what's painful or unpleasant, we suffer from aversion to what we're experiencing. If we struggle to hold on to what's pleasant, we suffer from greed. But if we're free from the struggle of aversion to what's difficult, we don't suffer. Even though what we experience may be painful or unpleasant. Instead, the experience is known for what it is. And it passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. And this is equanimity. If we're free from the struggle to hold on to what we like, we're able to connect with and allow the pleasant without becoming unhappy when things change. The experience is known for what it is and passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. This is equanimity. When we're balanced, centered, and present, we experience the mind state of equanimity. In this state of balanced clarity, we have the maximal ability to act and choose in wise and skillful, effectual ways which promote our well-being and the well-being of others. So that sounds good. How do you do it? How do you learn how to do it? How do we learn to serve all those surf all those different waves that are rise in the course of a hour, a day, a retreat, a lifetime, a lot of different possible ones. There is a key to this, which is a mind that's busy noticing, which is another way of saying mindful, is more in touch with things as they happen is more in touch with reality. Non-distracted connection with the wave is key to learning how to surf. Non-distraction connection with the wave is key in learning how to surf. So let's talk about that point a little more specifically and talk about how it can be cultivated in insight meditation, better known as Vipassana which is the primary practice that we're doing here. Let's talk about the first experience with meditation. It can kind of be a shock. It was shocking to me. Anyway. One of the first things you have to come to terms with when you're learning this kind of meditation is that the instructions encourage you to accept unpleasant and difficult experiences which may arise as being valid meditation objects. And for many people, most people perhaps, this is very counterintuitive because most of the time you don't 
turn to learning meditation because you want to have more (laughs) of what you've already got. And in fact, usually the way of thinking is, well, I want to have more happiness, I want to have more peace, I want to have more well-being, I want some light, I want some love. You know, that's where we really want to go when we start. Some place like that. Some image like that. So the instructions are given to open in a non-preferential way. But because they're so counterintuitive, we have a very hard time truly grasping what's been said. And we forget it again and again. So it's very common in practice for people who are having difficult or unpleasant experiences to think that they're a sign that something is wrong. Either that they're doing something wrong or that the practice is wrong or that the instructions are wrong or some combination of wrongs. And that's not necessarily the case. In fact, equanimity is developed out of a process which connects with, not rejects, any and all experience. In other words, we learn how to connect with the waves of experience, the pleasant ones, the unpleasant ones, and the neutral ones equally. So when I was writing this talk, I had an image come up representing the mind and how the mind tends to relate to things. And the image that came up for me was being a kid on a swing on the playground. You know, the swing is the swing set and the, you know, the little thing that you sit on and there's the two ropes or chains and you swing back and forth, swing back and forth. And the mind is, is very much like that, especially in its untrained state. Constantly swinging back and forth between wanting things and not wanting things. That one looks good, that one looks bad. That one looks good, that one looks bad. I like that one, I don't like that one. I don't like that, I don't want that. I could do this, no, I don't want that. (laughs) This is what's going on all the time. And usually we don't see that we ourselves are propelling this swinging back and forth. That there's something about how we're relating to this whole process of this movement of mind that we're missing. So it's our way of being on the swing, so to speak, that's keeping the whole thing in motion. And it's a pretty wild ride you remember when you're a kid on the playground playing around on the swings maybe you know somebody come along and they're helping you and then as it often goes with <laughs> children you know then they start kind of like giving it a little twist and then you're kind of like spinning and you know maybe you're like really kicking high and then it's going whoa and the swing gets bigger and bigger and it gets kind of wild and then it gets a little bit scary and then you want to stop, but it's going too fast, and then you're dragging your feet and trying to make it, you know, or maybe you bail out at some point. It can get really wild in there, really wild in the mind. But as, as we practice, as we, we go along, we get a little bit better at centering on the swing. We get a little better at figuring out how we can stay on it without holding on to the chains for, for dear life or worrying about whether we're going to fall off altogether. So now we're more just riding it as it's happening, not adding to what's happening. And when we no longer add 
to what's happening, what occurs? stops. At a certain point that energy of reactivity wears out. And then it's just plumb center. The practice of continuous application of the same kind of attention to all things arising and passing away, gradually decreases reactivity in the mind. So in insight practice, consider what we're doing. We're saying there are a number of different ways to describe the field of practice, to speak to the point of what kind of thing are we noticing in this particular way. We describe it in different ways. We could say, well, it's the four foundations of mindfulness and what arises within there. We could say it's the six sense doors, the five aggregates, everything that arises within these fields, which is all a different way of pointing the mind to different ways to connect to everything. Have you noticed that? If you really look at the categories, you really pay attention to it. They translate everything. <laughs> yeah, it gives you the little breakdown of the different categories, but it means everything all the time. So we're asking the mind to do the same thing in the same way, regardless of preference in relationship to what we directly experience. whether we like what we're experiencing or not. So if you go, you may notice if you go into interviews with the teachers and they'll say, what's going on? Tell me about your practice, what's happening? If you go into a large story about you know, what happened two weeks ago and then you're talking about what happened yesterday and then you're talking about, you know, something you want to do when you leave, the teacher probably says something to you like, what's happening now? What's happening now? What, what's happening now? Now. Which is cluing you to the fact that the orientation is to the immediate present in doing this practice. It's now. Now oriented. That's the place of practice. So we maintain this view of continually knowing what is predominant as much as possible. We use other instructions. Other techniques may be given. Other instructions may uh, be given in order to maintain balance in the practice or to regain stability, strategically regroup. But the main thing that's going on is, as I've described, basically the instruction is to bring the same kind of attention, mindful investigation to everything. Now, of course, the mind isn't used to doing this because our practice has been the swing, swing practice. It's not used to doing it, and it doesn't really like the discipline of not wandering off. So things are stormy and uneven. So you come in and you tell the teacher, I had this storm come up, and I couldn't, I was doing it at the breath, and and then, you know, I got really angry, and, you know, and then I wasn't mindful of the breath, and then I felt discouraged, and then I felt disgusted, and then I felt whatever it is. So then the teacher is probably going to say to you something like, um, okay, so uh, 
could the mind, can the mind be with the, the arising of that hindrance of anger? Listens, listens. No? Okay. Uh, um, can the mind be with the rejection of the anger? No? Okay. Can the mind be with the sense of anger that it can't be with the rejection of the anger? And in, in talking to you and working with you, we'll keep going until we get a yes, no matter how far out in terms of metacognition is necessary in order to restore some sort of mindfulness to the whole, this whole proliferation of difficulty around this experience. So the basic instruction counsels the mind to regard and treat everything in the same way. Know it mindfully, investigate all arisings in the mind, the exception being strategic regrouping. So you'll notice this isn't a strategy of repressing reactivity. So you notice, for instance, usually the instruction is turn the mind towards the hindrance. You have a hindrance, turn the mind towards the hindrance. Pay attention to the hindrance. Investigate the hindrance. So you don't need to sit and clamp down and tell yourself you're not going to react. When reacting is there, reacting can be known. That's good practice, to know reacting when reacting is known. And there's a gradual development of the capacity to do this involving growth and calm and concentration. So gradually the mind learns to be awake and present more continually regardless of what it's experiencing. So take for an example the arising of a big emotional storm. When the mindfulness has some momentum with it and there's some concentration and the investigation piece is taken to heart, the mind starts to be able to station itself in the present, station itself in the now, and notice what is the storm? What is it? There's the arising of anger. There's a thought that's unpleasant. There's the image of a person. There is a body sense of unpleasant. There are sensations in the body. There is heat. There is tightness. There is churning. There is a feeling of fire. There's the impulse to get up. There's the judgment of self. There's the unpleasantness of that experience. It's like you're stationed the mind in the present and it's given a play-by-play of what's right there on top that's most predominant and it just stays there. It just stays right there in the present, right with it. This is happening, 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 getting stronger, getting stronger, getting weaker, getting weaker, getting tired, getting tired, getting sick of it, getting sick of it, getting pissed off, getting pissed off, getting mad at the teachers, mad at the teachers, wanting to go home, wanting to go home, sadness, sadness, crying, crying, tears, tears, warm, warm. Huh? Done. (laughs) Over. (sighs) Peace. Oh, relief. End of suffering. Whoa, what a ride. So the mind starts to see that there are many different events and experiences happening. It starts to see more per period of time, I guess would be one way to put it. 
And as the mind gets more concentrated, it starts to see other things too. Like it starts to notice how the struggle for control creates suffering. And that letting go of the struggle for control ends suffering. It also starts to notice the three characteristics. Oh, everything is sort of the same. I mean, it's all different. It's different every moment, but it's kind of the same in certain key ways. It's all impermanent. Because it's impermanent, it's unstable and cannot be relied upon. It's dukkha. And it's not under my control. It's not self. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, big storms, periods of tranquility, events that have a lot of I in them, events that have no I in it. The three characteristics are there universally and the mind starts to see it. And when the mind starts to see how suffering is created in the mind, it also begins to realize that poised non-resistance, knowing in that kind of way, is the way to go. Because that approach ends the struggle of fighting with things that can't be controlled. then it becomes easier and easier for the mind to start treating things in an equal fashion. And with that, preferences loosen and the hindrances abate. They weaken. Investigation and the rest of the seven factors of mindfulness strengthen, and it's easier to be with things as they are. When the mind is able to just rest in knowing, things present themselves exactly the way they are. And because it can, the mind can accept things as they present themselves, because they must be that way, it can see them more clearly. And this is the process where equanimity perfects mindfulness. And we're not going to go too much more into the seven factors of enlightenment because that's a whole separate talk. But this general description of how equanimity is strengthened in the mind is something that you can see for yourself if you pay attention. So Bhante Gunarantana describes the process of developing equanimity through the practice of Vipassana like this. Once you see that all the components of the body and mind in the past, present, and future are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and selfless, something remarkable happens. Equanimity arises regarding all conditioned things. Your mind looks at everything with equanimity, wholesome, unwholesome, physical, verbal, mental, Good, bad, or indifferent, it's all the same. It is beingness. It is simply reality. Your viewpoint is imperturbable. You realize that all those wonderful thoughts and feelings are constantly changing on a very subtle level. Those terrible ones are constantly changing too. A very deep letting go can occur. The arising of peace that passes understanding. And this state, that he describes, peace that passes understanding, is a state that's known in many different spiritual traditions. If you think of equanimity developed to its furthest point, to the point of this peace that passes understanding, or high equanimity as it's called in our tradition, this is an experience where the mind is completely present, 
It's completely open, clear, lacking in resistance of any type to what's experienced. And in lacking resistance, it is lacking in suffering. There's a kind of radiant quality in the mind, a deep stability. I can remember having this state arise at one point when I was on retreat. And my subjective experience was, wow, I can't believe I was ever disturbed by things. They're really not a big deal. I told you about my martial background in the earlier talk, but I mean, the image that came up in the mind to <laughs> demonstrate this in image was this sense of being, oh, forgive me, this is my background, okay. Being in an airplane flying above where any kind of gun or cannon could shoot it down. It was just like, you could see like the flak exploding, but it wasn't even in range. It wasn't like it wasn't there. Things could happen, things did happen, things would arise in the mind, they would pass away in the mind. It was pleasant, unpleasant, it was neutral. It was all equally fine. And the mind was very lucid. So it's not a zoned out kind of peace. It's a complete pliancy of mind. The mind, the knowing and what is known are one thing with no friction. So this is part of how this can go. The Buddha had, you know, a much deeper experience of this kind of state on the night of his enlightenment. Where if you remember some of the traditional versions of what happened there, he was, had taken the seat under the Bodhi tree with the resolve not to get up no matter what happened, no matter what he experienced. May my, I, uh, Flesh and bones dry up before I get up from the seat, before I have attained this opening which I seek for the benefit and well-being of all. So he took a seat. And part of what happened after he took a seat was he was assailed by the armies of Mara. This is how it was described. The armies of Mara. So this is put in the form of what I, as a Westerner, presume to be an image or a fable, kind of like me being in the airplane above the, <laughs> the flak guns. But So his experience was he's sitting under the tree, and he has first the forces of aversion towards him in the form of fire, being directed at him and arrows being shot and the sound of you know armies clanking their spears on their shields coming towards them you know weapons of torture all this you know they're trying to create fear in his mind and he said i see you mara and the arrows turned into flowers fell harmlessly around him. And then the second appearance of Mara was an appeal to his instinctual drives, shall we say. So versions of seductive members of the preferred gender approaching him, Buddha, oh, it's Bodhisattva then, Bodhisattva. (laughs) 
aren't you awfully lonely under the Bodhi tree? You're such a good-looking man. You know, the usual. But he saw it. So this was the appeal to desire, to wanting to connect in that kind of way with another human being, the satisfaction and pleasure of that. And he said, I see you, Mara. And they disappeared. And at this point, the challenge comes and said to him, here you are sitting under the Bodhi tree. You say you're not going to get up till you attain what you have practiced for. Who do you think you are? A familiar voice, perhaps. And it said he put his finger down, touched the earth as a witness, asked the earth to witness to his right to be in the seat. He asked the earth to testify to his the purity of his intention and the many lifetimes of practice to develop the perfections of mind that would allow his mind to open to the great understanding of the unconditioned and how to teach it. And said that the earth shook in witness. So this equanimity We have these tests to our equanimity as part of this practice. It can be very seductive and alluring to believe that the arising of these kinds of experiences is a sign of something that it isn't. So do not be deceived. So that's about equanimity cultivated and insight practice with the additional comment that in insight practice you can know this either as a primary experience as a state, so the state of equanimity, like I described that, my experience that one time of it when it felt, when it was at a state, a highly developed state, Or you could know it as a mental factor present in knowing something else. So what would, what would that be like? If you have an experience of something, say, something that's pleasant arising in the mind, you see it as unpleasant. The mind is okay with it being unpleasant. Maybe you see it as unpleasant, and there's even a reaction in the mind to it being unpleasant. But the mind is stable in seeing that and allowing it. In other words, it's not reacting to its own reactivity. It's seeing it, seeing the whole thing, able to hold the whole thing. That's an experience of equanimity in practice. And you've all had many experiences of of this. How, How do you know when it's there? At least in part, because the mind has let go of resistance to what's happening. And it's become a kind of, okay mind, this is the way it is right now. Oh, this is aching. This is unpleasant. Oh, this is restlessness. This is unpleasant. Restlessness is like this. In addition to the way of working with insight practice that inevitably develops equanimity, it inevitably develops equanimity if you continue, we can also cultivate equanimity through the practice of equanimity as a Brahma-vihara. And I'm not going to say too much about this 
because we're going to get a chance to do the practice um, next week, I think, or the week after. But as I said earlier, this is the fourth of the Brahma Viharas, and this brings in the wisdom element. So you start by training the mind or inviting the mind to stability and calm, presence. Consider the value of stability and calm in the body and mind, and then after inviting that, you start offering phrases to beings in a selected order, starting with someone who's fairly neutral. Interestingly enough, that's where you would start with equanimity. And again, the felt sense of equanimity might be there, it might not be there when you start doing the practice. You set the intention, you invite it, you offer the phrases, you carry the the image or the felt sense of the individual, you invite the arising of this. If it doesn't arise in a way where there's a felt sense, that's okay, that's not a problem. You're planting the seeds of intention for the future arisings of the state when the conditions are right for it to be there. And all of these Brahma Viharas, when you're working with them, of course, are conditioned states. Meaning they're impermanent and temporary, conditioned like everything else. And that's just fine. These are relational practices. If you look at what's happening with the Brahma Viharas, if you looked at it kind of on a neurological level, yes, you may be intending to invite and create this state. It's a very skillful invitation for the state to be present. When the state is present and the seeds for its future arising have been planted, you're set setting the stage for more frequent, spontaneous arising of this state. So, neurons that fire together, wire together. There is a biological thing happening here too with that. You're saying, I'm going to run this circuit. I'm going to run this set of connections, turning the mind in this way, having this kind of thought, holding this kind of image, with this kind of intention. Let's get this one going. This is a wholesome one. Let's get this one going for a while. So if you looked at the equanimity phrases, uh, a classic one is, uh, all beings are the heir to their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness are dependent on their actions and not on my wishes for them. And you can see right in how that's phrased, the wisdom aspect of equanimity. It takes the big picture. It understands impermanence. It understands conditionality. It's informed by an understanding of the brightness and shadow of this conditioned realm. Another way to phrase that could be, may I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance? May I be open and balanced and peaceful? A third way to cultivate it is with jhana practice. Jhanas are states of very... uh, deep concentration that can be trained in a number of different ways but usually are entered into uh, using the breath. This particular uh, jhana that I'm talking about is the fourth material jhana that has two elements to it. One is one-pointedness of mind and the other is equanimity. And over time If the mind develops a lot of concentration, the mind can actually learn to be absorbed into this state where the only experience is basically the experience 
of this state itself. That's kind of a specialty of meditation. <laughs> You're ba- basically developing concentration in order to be able to use it in insight practice. Although these very concentrated states do have some interesting things in and of themselves. And then the last way to train and practice this state of equanimity is parami practice. Equanimity is one of the paramis or perfections of mind. Here we're practicing developing equanimity in regard, in particular, to the eight worldly winds that I talked about earlier. Praise and blame, gain and loss, honor and disrepute, pleasure and pain, did I say it? So just another story here. Should I tell this story? Yeah, I'll tell this story. This is a bit of a story on me. So I left retreat once after doing the three-month retreat. And when I went on retreat, I didn't have a job. And when I came off retreat, I didn't have a job. But the difference was, I didn't have any money either. <laughs> Some of you may resonate with this. but So I didn't have a job for a number of months, and it was getting, getting kind of scary. So I finally got an interview, and I got hired as the executive director of this nonprofit organization. And this organization had a lot of strengths, but it had issues, as they, as organizations often do. And it was housed in a typical nonprofit setting, I must say. For those of you who work in this sector, you may appreciate this. So this place used to be, first it was temporary housing for uh, government workers during people who were working on government stuff, like some kind of manufacturer or something, during the Second World War. And then after that, it was a tuberculosis hospital. <laughs> and then there were a number of nonprofits, you know, in these buildings that kind of looked like old, decrepit barracks. So this was my celestial abode. There I was the executive director. And I had only been hired about two weeks. And part of the process of being hired, of course, is you had to go through an interview with the board of directors. And the board of directors had its body areas. It was up and up and down. There, there was one woman in particular who, on the, who was on the board who was older than the other people on the board. She, she was probably in her mid-70s at the time of this, and she was very accomplished. She was very intelligent. She had a PhD, uh, you know, really had been in uh, a pioneer in science during an era where there weren't a lot of women who did that or really were allowed to do that. And she had been involved with this organization for years. She had really carried it. She had been the one responsible, constant person and she felt a lot of sense of ownership for it. And different people would come on the board of directors, and you know, a number, some of them were serious and some of them weren't. But she was very serious about this organization, which had a role in the community of feeding people, feeding low income people. She was very serious about it, she took it very seriously. And she was a bit of a curmudgeon. So, you know, she had high standards. She wanted things to be right. So she would do things like one day she came um, to the door of the (laughs) the barrack slash TB hospital in which we were residing. And somebody on staff uh, who was a smoker had put uh, a butt can out by the front door. You know, you know what a butt can is? Kind of like this tubular thing where you put cigarettes in. Uh, right by the front door. And it was nasty. I mean, it was nasty. And, you know, she had seen that, and she was so upset by that. She came in. She picked it up. She walked down the hall to the 
receptionist's desk and like put it on there, put it on the top of the desk. And the receptionist, who was a very mild woman who, you know, had had other interactions of this similar <laughs> nature and who desired to preserve her job was just kind of horrified, you know, by this. This damn thing shouldn't be out there, you know, like right on your desk. So there was a committee meeting going on in our one conference room where a number of the other board members, including some of the perhaps less serious and responsible ones, were in there. And they ran overtime. They were in there kind of goofing around and, you know, it was the one room that could be used and she was there for another meeting and she was there standing. She had a bad hip. She was there standing five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. They're still in there. They're screwing around. She, she starts to feel really angry and really disrespected. And she starts letting loose with the verbal... <laughs> Well, I think we must have had sailors in that barrack at some point because the language would have peeled the paint right off the walls. And some of it was directed at me. So she was saying this in front of the receptionist, that, blah, 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 And the receptionist is totally freaked out by this time. She comes running down the hallway and I could hear it. I was in my office, I could hear her feet coming down the hall. And she said, da-da-da is here. And she's really upset. She's really upset. I said, okay, okay I'll, I'll be down. I'll be down. She said, no, she's really upset. She's really upset. She, no, she's, she's like, and her eyes were big. And I'm like, okay, okay. This is my second week on the job. I need this job. <laughs> so I go down there, walking. I was close enough to retreat that yeah, I was still in the body. I could feel my feet touching the floor. <laughs> mindfully walking, mindfully walking. Watch the arising of the knot in my stomach because I could start to hear it now and I could hear my name being mentioned in it. I, I think it was a failure of oversight with the conference uh, room schedule or something like that. And so I get down there and she's going off and she turns around and looks at me and I said, oh, what's the matter, X? And she gives me the whole thing, you know, complete with, with swear words. And, and then she tops off and she says, I'm too goddamn old to be doing this shit. It's <laughs> 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 like, right there. And I, I don't know where it came from, but, you know, somewhere from the time on the cushion, out of my mouth came in this tone, Gee, that's funny. You don't talk like an old lady. <laughs> and she looked at me, and I thought for a moment, oh, she's really good. And then she laughed, and she laughed. And after that, it shifted. It was a different, we became friends. She became a real ally of mine on the board. You know, she would back me up. She would protect me. When she got mad, it wasn't at me, which made me happy. And uh, when she died, I gave her eulogy. So there you go. The benefits of equanimity. So my wish for you all then is that you may find in your time here that capacity of mind to open in a spacious and balanced way to what arises without preference. Learning to see and know the swings of mind, the reaction of mind, within a larger poised space of trust.
May the merit of our practice benefit all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.